Well, I want to begin this morning saying what a privilege it is to come back here to a place that in some ways I, I do feel like a, a father to, a father coming back to my children, although uh, I am much younger than Travis. Um, but it is uh, genuinely good to, to hear. I still keep in touch with Travis and, keep, and uh, speak with Sean and and uh, always I'm thankful to hear of God's faithfulness to this church that uh, I poured so much of my own life into. And uh, so glad to be back here and to be able to share in the Word of God with you. Uh, many of you uh, were here when I was here and my family was here and, and it was a gift for us. And it's, uh, it's good. It's good to be back with you to uh, enjoy God together. This morning, and there's nothing I'd rather do with you than than do that to look into the scriptures together. So, if you would, uh, as you have your Bibles in Daniel chapter three, I would like to not read the whole chapter. It's lengthy, but let me begin in verse 14 so we can get the gist of the story. Daniel chapter three, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who shook up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. 
And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. And we are in need this morning of you to use your word to shape us and change us and transform us and cultivate our hearts. Lord, let your word have effect on us this morning. Let it not return void. I pray that through your word this morning that we would see more of your greatness, of your glory, of your power, of your wisdom, of your faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be drawn to look away from ourselves and to trust in you and to hope in you and to worship you, Lord. Let us not go away from this place today the same as we came in because we have met with the living God. We have communed with you and we are in need. We are beggars. So Lord, please, by your mercy, work in us now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. A little over 150 years ago, Charles Spurgeon opened one of his sermons with words like this. The highest, science, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, 
refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. There is nothing we need more in the depths of our soul than a contemplation of the immensity of God and the greatness of God and the glory of God. And we want to do that. We want to lose ourselves in contemplation of all that God is for us. It's the most practical subject we can give our attention to as we engage with the sorrows of life or the difficulties of life or the failures of life or the feelings that we all have coming this morning of inadequacy and need, which we all have. There's nothing we can do better than engage our attention with the living God and all that He has, and all that He is. And I love the way John Piper puts this. He says, Become a mountain climber on the cliffs of God's majesty and let the truth begin to overwhelm you that you will never exhaust the heights of God. Every time you climb over a rim of insight, there stretches out before you, disappearing into the clouds, a thousand miles of massive beauty in the character of God. So set yourself to climb and ponder the thought that everlasting ages of discovery in the infinite being of God will not suffice to weaken your gladness in the glory of God or dull the intensity of gravity in His presence. And that's what I want to do this morning. And this, this is what the book of Daniel does, doesn't it? More than anything else, the book of Daniel leads us to these heights, these mountains of the infinite majesty and glory and power and kingship and wisdom and rescue of God. The book of Daniel points us to this majestic God, and there's no better news in the world than looking at this majestic God. Isaiah 52 even says, as it calls on preachers to proclaim the good news, when it answers this question, what is good news? What is the gospel? What is the greatest gospel we can know as human beings? And the answer that Isaiah gives is, your God reigns. Your God reigns is good news. And how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who preaches that good news. And that's what the book of Daniel does for us this morning. Now, you know this story in Daniel 3. And you know it's a story in many ways about these three men who demonstrated great character. Great character and commitment to their God when they were called on to compromise. Great character in engaging with uh, a potential disastrous situation, even the loss of their own life in a terrible way. Faced with uh, shame, perhaps, before many who were watching this, and they demonstrated trust and obedience. So this chapter has a lot to say to us about character, But what I would suggest to us is still, even with what it points us to in these men who demonstrated exemplary character for us, the main message that Daniel 3 has for us is to point us to the great God who demonstrated His power 
and his ability to rescue these men. So what I want to do this morning is offer you from Daniel chapter 3 the three simple characteristics about God. And my prayer is that as we do this, that the glory of God will draw us to trust Him in the midst of whatever circumstances we have, draw us to hope in Him and to worship Him. So let me offer you these three things. The first thing I think that Daniel chapter 3 teaches us about God is that He is the kind of God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is the kind of character that God has, that He's demonstrated throughout history. In fact, uh, God has a day, as Isaiah puts it, in which He will bring down all that is haughty and prideful against him. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 12 says. Isaiah chapter 2, I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. As Isaiah looks out into the future, he says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's Isaiah's description of the final consummation of all things. It's one way you can generally describe what's going to happen in that day of consummation. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up. And you notice when Mary sings her song, the Magnificat that we're reminded of every Christmas time, she highlights these very same themes about God in her own situation. What Mary thinks is going on when the Messiah has come with this child that she's going to give birth to, she describes it in these very ways. What God is doing through this child and in these circumstances that she's experiencing is he's pulling down the wisdom of the wise and the pride of those who are high and lifted up and raising up those who are low. Luke chapter 1, verses 51 and 52. She sings, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's what the coming of Jesus is about and what it does. King Nebuchadnezzar eventually realizes this himself. He says, actually, at the end of chapter 4, which you guys will hear from next week, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So, God is a God who stands in opposition 
to pride, stands in opposition to those who raise themselves up against God, and he lifts up those who humble themselves before him. And the beginning of chapter 3 demonstrates for us the kind of person that God opposes. Nebuchadnezzar is that person. Even though he has just experienced in the previous chapter the amazing power and wisdom of Daniel's God, yet still he raises himself up against God in pride. Nebuchadnezzar raises himself against God by disregarding what God has spoken to him. You know, in the last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he's inviting the wise men to interpret the dream for him. And of course, uh, what he learns is that only Daniel can interpret the dream, not because Daniel is special, but because Daniel's God is the God of heaven. And he gives him this dream about the, the image that has a golden head and, and different kinds of materials that it's made up of, which represents four kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is represented by one part of the image. And eventually, the stone comes and crushes the whole image in order to say that this stone will be the great kingdom who comes and shatters all the others. So Nebuchadnezzar sees the power of God and the wisdom of God in this. Nevertheless, when we open up chapter 3, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is planning to disregard what God has spoken to him through this dream. And he creates his own golden image that he sets up in the plain of Dura, a large golden image, very tall, so that people can see it for miles and miles, and he sets it up in the desert, and he calls all the people to come and worship before this image, to bow down before this image. And if they don't, they will be cast into the fiery furnace. Now, what exactly is Nebuchadnezzar doing with this image? How is he particularly displaying his disregard for what God has spoken? Well, if you remember the dream from the previous chapter, this image represents the kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar creates this image not just with a golden head, which was supposed to be representative of his own kingdom, but he makes the whole thing gold. So it seems like what Nebuchadnezzar, partly what he's doing is, is standing in the face of this dream that he's had to say, this whole thing is mine. Not just the golden head, but the whole image is golden. It seems also that this image is a symbol of worldwide dominion. It's meant to be the counter image to Genesis 1. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, and God calls them to, uh, to spread dominion throughout the earth, have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field, spread God's glory as his representative kings throughout the world, so to speak. Now Nebuchadnezzar is setting up this golden image seemingly as representative of his own worldwide dominion. Again, completely in disregard of what God has called him to or spoken to him 
in the previous chapter. And isn't it true that the essence of pride all throughout the Scriptures is just this, disregarding what God has spoken. Disregarding what God has spoken. Raising ourselves up against what God has said. Nebuchadnezzar asserting his own worldwide dominion and calling all peoples to bow down before it. There are indications in the text that what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is also indicative of what happened at the Tower of Babel, where the people in the, in the world were trying to make a name for themselves instead of a name for God and trying to consolidate their power in one place. So Nebuchadnezzar is here seeking to make a name for himself, creating a new Babel, so to speak, calling this calling the peoples of the world to gather together around him and around his image that he has set up. So Nebuchadnezzar's pride is disregarding what God has spoken. Nebuchadnezzar's pride shows itself in trying to make a name for himself and draw attention and glory to himself. And you know what happens when we do that? When we become prideful in disregarding to God and when we desire for attention to come to ourselves, then we tend to get angry when those things don't happen. One of the things that reveals pride in us is the anger when those things don't go exactly like we want them to. And Nebuchadnezzar demonstrates this very clearly. It says in verse 13, when he hears this uh, reality that that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not going to bow down to the image that he has set up, It says in verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. In verse 19, we see his anger arise again. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, it says, so much so that the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his anger not only expressed itself in the change of his face, but it expressed itself in how much he wanted to bring destruction to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His anger exerted itself in telling those who had charge of the furnace to heat it up, make it hot, seven times hotter than it was supposed to be before. Isn't that what happens when our pride raises itself and we get angry? We tend to take more drastic measures in our anger. The order was urgent, the text says. Nebuchadnezzar was so angry because his rule, his kingship, his sufficiency, his name, he felt, was being disregarded and dishonored. When all the while he's doing this very thing against God. Nebuchadnezzar should have realized what John the Baptist said in John 3, verse 27, which is, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And why do you boast as though you did not receive it. 
Or I love what Paul says in Athens in Acts chapter 17 as he's speaking to these philosophers who are polytheists. They believe in many gods uh, similar to the culture that Nebuchadnezzar had, perhaps. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. This is the way Nebuchadnezzar should have responded to God. Because his kingship, even his kingship, was given to him by God. Even this king of Babylon, even though he's not a king in Israel, his kingship in Babylon is still something that comes to him from God. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Why do you boast as though you did not receive this? Daniel 2, verse 21, says that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. It is God who gives even to King Nebuchadnezzar. Or in chapter 4, verse 17, it says it again. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It is God who gives these things. And instead of recognizing that all that he had came from God and was a gift from God, and therefore he should not boast over his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar chooses to disregard what God has spoken. He chooses to draw attention to himself, and he gets angry when it doesn't happen that way. Nebuchadnezzar comes into the story in Daniel 3 in order to illustrate for us that God is a God who opposes the proud. But there's another characteristic of God here that comes out clearly in Daniel 3, and that is that God rescues His people from the bleakest of circumstances. God rescues His people from the bleakest of circumstances. And I want you to see how true this is throughout the Scriptures. This strikes me so many times as I read, as I think about the broad sweep of what God has done in history. How many times has He rescued His people from the precipice of disaster or worse, what seems to be disaster that's already happened? Think about it. God intervenes and rescues when lives are at the end, or even when his own, uh, his own promises seem to have disappeared, or they're hanging by a thread, at least. Abraham and Sarah, they're 90 and 100 years old, and God has promised them a child. Sarah laughs at this because it is so incredible to believe as, as Paul puts it in Romans, they were as good as dead. And everybody knows that the dead don't live. They're dead. It's hopeless. It's, it's past hope here. And yet God gives them a child. 
What do you think it would have been like if you had been Joseph? Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers. And then he's down in Egypt in slavery. He gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He gets thrown into prison. He's there for a good long while in prison. He even interprets these dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. And then they forget about him two more years. Think about this. What are you doing when you're sitting in your jail, your prison cell, and you're Joseph in these moments? You're probably thinking, perhaps, if you're in Joseph's place, I don't know that he did this, but perhaps we do this. What is going on? Where is God? This is senseless. I've been sold into slavery. I've been falsely accused. I've been forgotten about by the cupbearer and the baker. All hope is gone. The promises of God are not hanging by a thread anymore. They're dead. This makes no sense. We are long past hope here. And then we learn that God has been there all along, guiding, controlling, doing his thing. And he brings the rescue to Joseph. Israel themselves enslaved in Egypt 400 years, we have every indication that even Israel had lost hope. They had abandoned hope that God was faithful, that God was there, that God was going to do it. 400 years in slavery, even when they're not even thinking about him anymore, pretty much. They're groaning. They're crying out. God comes and rescues them. Or you know the story of the kings of Israel. They The promise is supposed to come through the line of David, and yet we get to episodes where there's only one one descendant of David left, and he's young, he's a child. He gets hidden. Things seem like hope is lost. The hope, the promise is hanging by thread. Yet, from God's view, no problem. If you think about this situation that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in, it would seem hopeless. The, the people of God have gone into exile. They're in Babylonian captivity. And it's a hopeless situation. And you know, not only here are we in Babylonian captivity, but, but then, we come, then will come Persian captivity, and then Greek captivity, and then Roman captivity. And this is going to go on for hundreds of years. You think about by the time we get to the New Testament, could we be thinking, where is the promise of God? This is senseless. We're in captivity. There hasn't been a prophet to speak the word of God in hundreds of years. And yet in that situation comes the child born in Bethlehem. This situation here is like that. It's beyond hopeless, it seems. Here they're in Babylonian captivity, which was a terrible fate for the people of God. And every time I I read Psalm 137, I'm reminded of the anguish of this. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required required of us songs and our and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're hanging up their instruments of music. In Zion, they sang songs to Yahweh. But in Babylon, we're hanging up our, our instruments. We don't have songs of joy. This is a disastrous situation. And if that's not bad enough, here comes King Nebuchadnezzar calling on these men, these leaders, to forsake their God. And what he's asking them to do is very clear. He's asking them to forsake what were the first two commands that God had given his people at Mount Sinai, right? You shall have no other God before me. You shall not worship any image of any kind. And if you don't do this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then death is coming to you in the fire. But you know what happens? God once again, once again, as he's done time after time after time after time, when the situation seemed absolutely dead and beyond hope and bleak, God rescues Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As we read, verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. God has come here to show that he is a God who rescues his people, even from the bleakest of situations. He is able to do this. Now you might say, well, is that what God wants us to hear? That he's going to come, if we trust him, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is going to come and rescue us from our difficult situations? And the answer to that question is, not always. In fact, there are many times throughout the history of God's people that they were not rescued from these circumstances at all. And you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego leave open that possibility. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to rescue us from your hand, O king, but even if he does not, we still will not worship you the image that you have set up, even if he does not. They know he might not. He hasn't always in the history of Israel. But what God is doing through this story is he's giving us a foretaste that he is the God who is able. We see the, in these instances throughout history, God shows us once again through his act of rescue and redemption that no matter how bleak our circumstances might be, even if it does come to death for us, then God is able and will rescue his people, no matter how bad it might seem. And I know we all get there. I would venture to say that every person in this room has been there in their lives, or maybe you're there now, or you will be in the future. You're in that place where you're saying, this, what's going on? This is senseless. My hope, my faith, it's hanging by a thread here. 
And this is when I remember these stories and those moments. This is not 400 years of slavery in my life. It seems hopeless. It seems senseless. I don't know what's going on. But God is faithful. He always has been. And he's shown it to us in stories like this. You know what it says at the end of Hebrews chapter 11 as it points us to the people of Israel in the past who did not end up in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's situation in terms of being rescued in the present. Hebrews chapter 11, as it's giving this list of those who trusted God in faith in their circumstances, verse 13, it says, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Or beginning in verse 35, it says, some were tortured. It's talking about God's people throughout history. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive in this life what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And I think this is the foretaste that the story of Daniel gives us. God is able to rescue us. God is able to rescue us. God is able to rescue us from whatever dire circumstances he has, or we have. And he did that for Shadrach, Meshach, and Agit. Abednego has another illustration that he can do it and he will do it. But even if he does not, even if he does not, these folks are commended for their faith because they're looking to something better that is coming. And God shows us in the past, he can do it, he will do it. In fact, when you get to Daniel chapter 7, you see that the Son of Man comes to rescue His saints who are suffering, who have been suffering. And what He does with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shows us that so clearly. Well, let me just say this last thing about God that's clear from this text. That is that Israel's God alone is God overall. He's a God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He's a God who rescues his people from their bleak circumstances. And he alone is God. There is no other one. And you notice Nebuchadnezzar's response at the end of the chapter, verse 29. He says, therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. There is no other God who is able 
to rescue in this way. As Paul House puts it, only this God can be trusted to redeem the exiled Israel's future. Only this Lord deserves praise from Jewish exiles and Gentile kings alike. He alone is God, and there is no other. And the more we look to Him and see who He is and what He's like and what He has done, the more we humble ourselves and trust Him. So this is the call, I think. This is why Daniel 3 is here before us, why God has given it to us. One is a call to us to not be like Nebuchadnezzar in disregarding what God has spoken, in calling in pride attention to ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, or in growing angry when those things don't happen like we desire for them to, but to humble ourselves before the great God. And isn't this exactly what Jesus showed us to do? Like Paul says in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did, right? Equality with God, grasping for equality with God. But the Son of God did not do that. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he took on human flesh. And he became a servant in humility to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God highly exalted him. So when we hear this story of Nebuchadnezzar and his response to God, our call should be to humble ourselves like Jesus. And then, secondly, to trust this God who rescues his people. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. So the call here from the story is that we might be like them in trusting this God who carries us through what may seem to be senseless circumstances. I heard a pastor say this week, and I think this is a good summary of Daniel 3, life is hard, God is good, glory is coming, so trust Him. Trust Him. Can we pray? Lord, we rest this morning in knowing that You are the God of heaven who reigns over all things. And we have nothing, we have nothing that we did not receive. But everything we have, life and breath and all things, is a gift from your hand. 
And Lord, there are many ways in our lives that we respond to you more like Nebuchadnezzar, disregarding your word, drawing attention to ourselves, growing angry when things don't go as we want them to go, rather than humbling ourselves under your hand. And Lord, too often, we get into the circumstances that aren't going the way we want them to go. We feel like the answers are not there. We wonder where you are. We don't know what's going on. Lord, we pray that in those circumstances, you will help us remember all of the times that God's people were in circumstances that were beyond hope. Impossible. But you are the God who raises the dead. You are the God who does the impossible. And you have shown us through the death and resurrection of your Son that even if we don't live to see the resolution of our circumstances, we can trust you. We can trust you. Help us to do that this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.